Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the GeoTrek podcast. Today, we have a very exciting podcast for people interested in science and for people interested in clear communication about climate hazards, how we can adapt, and things like that. We have Daniel Nix with us today. He's the Utility Operations Manager within the Department of Public Works for the city of Wichita Falls, Texas. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Al, thanks for having me. Uh, Daniel, I was so impressed by spending time with you a couple weeks ago. I did a road trip up to Oklahoma. On the way, I thought, you know, I want to stop in Wichita Falls. I've heard a lot about this town and uh, just meeting you and hearing the story of resiliency up there for me was very inspirational. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it as well. One of the things that hit me is just your love for science. I mean, uh, I, my background's more climate science. You are very strong in chemistry, but you know, there's a, there are overlapping things with science about curiosity and, and things like that. How did you get interested in science? Were there mentors growing up or you know, what inspired you? Well, it, it, Hal, that's a great question. Um, I, was, I was raised on a, a ranch. And so uh, the environment was always part of my life. And <clears throat> I guess it was in fourth grade when science really took hold of me. And I remember um, being so enthralled with it that I asked my mother if I could have the science book that uh, we used in, in school. And so she went to the uh, independent school district and actually bought the textbook for me. And I still have that textbook today. Um, keep it on my bookshelf at, at home. I had you know, a mentor in uh, junior high and then um, just took as much science as I could in, in high school. And then going into college, um, my degree is in environmental science, which was perfect for me because I got to minor in biology and chemistry and geology. Nice. So you have a really pretty broad background in a sense as far as science. Yes. And a note for our younger listeners, I think about this when I talk to my kids, when we hear about getting a science book, it doesn't maybe sound so exciting today in the day of the internet, but back in the day, there was no web, there was no internet. Literally a book could change your life, right? Because there was no other way to get that if you didn't have the paper book in your hands. Absolutely, that the, the book was where all the information was. And you needed that specific book. Actually, I was talking to someone about the strength of your local library could make a big difference too, because you know, um, just reading through those science books, there were only so many maybe, but uh, if, you, if you had a good library, it really helped the kids out. Um, really cool though, um, it sounds like you had some good mentors and growing up on a, on a ranch as well, I'm sure there's science around you with animals and biology and stuff uh, all the time and the environment as well. So you mentioned getting into, into college and some of the, the breadth you had there in science. What's the path really from your college days to working with the city of Wichita Falls? Well, I, uh, it, it's kind of an odd trek. Uh, I kind of did things backwards. Um, I started off as an engineering major uh, because I also like mathematics. And um, my, after my second year, I came back home for the summer and took a summer job with the city. <clears throat> and I realized that the city actually paid more than going to college. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll take a gap year. And that gap year has led to 36 years of working for the city. So I just switched and became a non-traditional student. So I had a full-time job. It was a part-time student and just continued to uh, pluck away at those courses, taking night courses, online courses, 
uh, courses during the day when it fit my schedule at work and eventually ended up with my environmental science degree. You feel like that helped shape what you wanted to do with your education because you, you were working full time at the same time. Well, the, I had one of the mentors that I had was uh, Dr. Rick Williams at Midwestern State University, a, a outstanding chemist. And at the time I was a chemistry major and <clears throat> he knew my background uh, working for the city and Midwestern State University had actually created a new environmental science program. And he came to me and said, Daniel, I think this is perfect for you. Uh, would you like to switch majors? And so that's actually how I ended up in the environmental science program. Uh, I was on track to be a chemist. Oh, that's really interesting. So obviously that still involves chemistry, but I guess a lot broader than that as well. Absolutely. And I, I have Dr. Williams to thank for that. Yeah. It, it's, isn't it interesting how, you know, one person in your life can help you pivot into a whole different direction, you know? So, you know, there were there you were. So you've been with the city, you said, for, is it 36 years now you've been working? Yeah, that's fantastic. So you've seen a lot of uh, different, you know, time periods, different weather and climate as well. We know that drought's an issue, obviously, for much of Texas, but it seems like there was really an exceptional drought up there. Uh, could you talk about really those years? When was really the heart of the drought that was most severe in North Texas there? Well, we went through a drought in the mid nineties and that ended in the year 2000 and <clears throat> learned a lot during that drought. We started looking at other resources uh, and then we came into another drought starting in 2011 and that ended in 2015 and <clears throat> that ended up being what we call our drought of record. It is the most severe drought that we've experienced. And so all of our water resource planning moving forward will be based off of the data for that drought. I got it because it's really the most severe that you've seen on record. Exactly. Well, really, what was that like for the people in the city when you moved into the heart of that drought? I mean, it seems like it was at least a, a four year drought. I mean, what was it like for the people that live there? It was pretty tough. Uh, you know, 2011, <clears throat> we saw, um, half as much, well, actually a quarter of much uh, rainfall as we normally got, uh, and four times as many days over 100 degrees as we typically see. So uh, 2011 was tough for the citizens of Wichita Falls. We had wildfires going off all around us. Um, the wind was terrible, evaporation rates were high, and we saw our lake, uh, lake levels drop from the mid 80s, and down to about 55%. So we lost about 30% of our reservoir capacity in a single year. And then uh, in 2012, things were a little bit better, but it was still twice as hot or twice as many days over 100 that we typically see in a, a normal year. And we only got half as much rainfall as we typically see. So a little bit better, but still not enough to, to bring us out of a drought. Yeah, so that was really, I think, the beginning of that drought was 2011. 2012 didn't really improve that much. And then it actually got worse after that, right? Correct. We started getting a little bit more rainfall. We, we were getting over 20 inches uh, a year, and we averaged about 28. But the ground was so baked that it would absorb any rainfall. And so we were getting no runoff. And so any rain that we got didn't help whatsoever. 
That's a good point. You really need runoff into those reservoirs and lakes, and you weren't getting it, right? That's correct. Um, the, the ground was absorbing everything that uh, Mother Nature was throwing at it. And then like 2014, 2015, it actually got worse, right? Didn't you have some really long stretches with almost no rain at all? Yes, 2014 um, was um, a bad year for us. 13 wasn't so bad, but 14 was where we really got to the lowest point of our reservoir levels. We got down to 19% uh, of our available uh, lake storage capacity. And that's the lowest that I've ever seen it get in the 36 years that I've been here. Um, and luckily with our conservation and with our um, direct potable reuse, we were able to maintain that reservoir level at 19% at for a full 12 months, whereas the previous 48 months was a steady decline. So you were able to basically arrest that and stop the decline through really drastic measures there. That's correct. Um, to go, when was the point when you thought you might really be in trouble? I mean, because it seems like you took some very drastic and creative measures. Was there, and usually when people do that, there's a point where they're like, okay, we're, we're really in a crisis now. We need to think outside the box. Was there a moment in time that, that stands out to you where you said like, this is beyond just a normal drought. This is something beyond that. Well, 2011, we knew that we, we were in very strange territory. <clears throat> but in early 2012, we made a projection using the 2011 data, and it showed that we were going to be out of water uh, in 2013. We only had a year left, a year and a half. Uh, so we approached the state of Texas and said, we have to do something or you're going to have a large water system um, go dry. And so we started down a, a path with the TCEQ, um, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, sorry, uh, on an indirect potable reuse uh, system, which would take us five years to implement. So we went we were starting down that path and then uh, through the summer we saw what 2012 gave us and we recalculated using uh, both 2011 and 2012 data and we realized well okay we, if we keep having weather patterns like 2012 we won't run out of water in 2013 but it looks like it'll be 2015. Well, that's not five years. Uh, the IPR was going to take till 2017 to come online. So we went back to the state <clears throat> and asked them if we could do an emergency direct potable reuse. And Daniel, just to define this, when you say indirect reuse, what does that look like? What is that? Well, in potable reuse, you have indirect and you have direct. Uh, direct is where you're taking the water from a wastewater facility that's been completely treated through the wastewater treatment process and instead of releasing it to a receiving body to go downstream for somebody else to use you actually intercept it and you bring it back around directly to a water treatment plant and you treat it for drinking water indirect potable reuse is where you take that you intercept it and instead of coming directly back to a water treatment plant you go indirectly to a environmental buffer a lake or an, an aquifer. So within direct, you're putting it back out into the environment for a period of time. 
in, in a controlled environment, an environment that I control, and then I bring it back into the plant. Normally, it would just go into a river and downstream for somebody else to use, and I don't control that. I understand. So uh, with indirect, you're saying, okay, in a controlled environment, it's going to take a, several more years, but that would be uh, kind of a first step. But it sounds like when you reevaluated, you said even if we do indirect reuse, we're still going to run out of water. That's correct. Uh, it was five years to get the indirect done. We projected we would be out by 2015. So we went back to them and said, let's do a direct potable reuse. So let's talk about that. So that's basically directly using the water from the wastewater treatment plant right to a, a treatment plant for drinking water. So it, it's no buffer at all. It's kind of going, that's why they call it direct reuse. Um, like, so who came up with that idea? Was that a team idea? Had had someone, had y'all heard of this before? I mean, it, it, it sounds very creative. It's something from what I understand, it hasn't been done too much before. Yes, uh, indirect potable reuse is very common. It's done throughout the United States. And in fact, everybody really lives downstream from somebody uh, and so there's there's a lot of de facto uh, indirect potable reuse going on. Direct potable reuse is uh, had not been done anywhere in the United States uh, ever before. And in fact, there, there was only one other place in the world that direct potable reuse had been used, and that was in Vindhoek, Namibia. That's in the southern part of Africa. So you're saying only one municipality in the world had done this before? Correct. And so the United States didn't have any rules or regulations or guidelines or even standards of how to put a direct potable reuse plant together. So what did that look like? Did that actually add challenges and restrictions or in a way did that help speed up the process because there, it's really not been done before in the US? Well, it, it definitely presented um, its challenges. Yeah, so I'm sorry, working with the state, we, we figured out what that would look like. Um, of course, there are rules and regulations for how water is treated in Texas. And so we had to look at what exceptions and what waivers were applicable. And then, of course, we had to test it and make sure that it was going to run the way that we had conceptualized it running. When you proposed this locally, was there support for it right away? Was there opposition, some combination of both? Well, the uh, we had talked about reuse in the drought of the 90s uh, as an exploration for future water resources. And we had studied it in the early 2000s. So the citizens of Wichita Falls kind of on the border knew about it. Um, now, they had gone through uh, the last two years of listening to us talk about the lake levels declining, going into uh, various stages of our drought contingency plan. And so when we approached them and said, look, we think we have a way of getting us through this drought, uh, we got a lot of support for that, especially from our businesses and industry. Yeah, that makes sense, um, because when you say the water running out, you mean you go to the tap, you turn it on, and there's nothing coming for your homes and businesses, right? That's correct. There's just nothing there. Were there, you know, the state or others, did, did anyone say, hey, we can offer bottled water for you or th things like that? And if so, uh, is, is that a viable plan or, or not? What are some problems with that? Yeah, the, uh, the state of Texas did say that they could provide the city of Wichita Falls with bottled water. And of course, that keeps us uh, 
able to cook and, and clean and, and stay hydrated, but that doesn't drive industry, it doesn't drive an economic engine. It doesn't supply water for hospitals and for public health. Uh, it doesn't keep our, our industry going here in Wichita Falls. And so you were looking at a complete collapse of a large municipality in Texas. I could picture too, you know, someone's going to resell their home and oh, by the way, there's no drinking water and you, you know, you need uh, bottled water to flush your toilet, right? I mean, what does that do for the home values as well, right? Exactly, you were, you were gonna be looking at, uh, if you could sell your house, uh, it was gonna be at a greatly reduced price. You were gonna lose money on it. And if you were moving, it was more than likely because your business or, the, or who you worked for had already gone out of business. So uh, that was just not a viable plan uh, from the state of Texas to provide bottled water to keep us going. So really you needed to find a creative way that you can keep the water running or face an economic collapse, basically. That's correct. Yeah, so you were kind of um, in this unfortunate situation, but you were able to be creative and innovative. When I met with you in your office, you mentioned as well how the staff and the employees with the city came together in new ways with this. I mean, how, how did these collaborations happen? Like who started working with whom during this time? Well, the great thing about Wichita Falls uh, is, is that the, um, we treat the water and we also treat the wastewater. So um, we were able to bring those two entities together and have them start working under uh, my direction as the utilities operations manager. <coughs> now they would, they would talk about how they had similarities in the past, like, um, um, treatment cost and chemicals and things like that, but to use the water from one and then uh, use it for drinking water and then relay that back to the wastewater plant, that was a completely new concept. Uh, the wastewater plant, they really did embrace it up front. They knew what quality of water they were producing and just putting in the river. Um, so they were on board, the water treatment plant kind of peaked an eyebrow, uh, but as soon as we started talking about the quality that they would be receiving and uh, that we had already planned out, we already had the treatment processes in place to treat out what uh, was too high for uh, primary drinking water standards to bring those back down, uh, they realized very quickly that this was a viable uh, way to do it. I'd imagine that people maybe started working together more collaboratively because these are really two different processes, but now they needed to be very linked, right? Correct. Um, <clears throat> they had been operating in silos, uh, independent of one another, uh, basically doing the same thing, cleaning water. Um, one for protection of public health through drinking water and the other one protection of the environment by treating wastewater. Right, and now they're, they're brought together. It's, you're speeding up the process out of necessity, right? You really had no other choice, it sounds like, you know. Um, what you mentioned- the Conservation can only do so much. Um, it is not the way to get yourself out of a drought. Um, you know, we, we can demonstrate uh, through our data that we went through five stages of a drought plan and the lake level continued to decline. Uh, Daniel, let's talk a little bit about that, though. When you say conservation, you mean like uh, the residents using less water, right? 
Correct. Um, you know, uh, changing their habits, changing the way they used water, um, putting in more water efficient uh, fixtures. Um, all of that is part of conservation and, and, and our drought planning. And the citizens of Wichita Falls, when we got down to uh, the lowest level uh, in 2014, uh, June, July, and August, the citizens of Wichita Falls were actually conserving 65% uh, of the water that they normally would have used. And so they were, um, they were operating off of what, 35%, uh, using 35% of what they normally would. So it sounds like conservation was making a difference, but this was so severe of a drought, it wasn't gonna pull you out of it. Correct. So when we added the um, direct potable reuse into the equation, we pushed that savings up to 80%. And so in June, July, August, we were living off of 20% of the water we normally would in a regular year. Yeah, that is really uh, super impressive. It sounds like the public came on board. They understood what they had to do. And it sounds like you've had support from the public from the beginning because you've been talking about this, you know, so much and, and just keeping them informed. Absolutely. Uh, we, we could not have done this without the public, uh, without our wholesalers. Uh, we have uh, Shepard Air Force Base up here, which is the largest Euro-NATO uh, Air Force Base in the United States. They did an outstanding job of hitting their conservation marks. Uh, they were, in fact, they were ahead of the citizens of Wichita Falls. If we were going for a 30% yeah. reduction, Shepherd Air Force Base was already there. Oh, that's great. It sounds like it sounds like a lot of uh, different entities were doing really what they had to do. Did you find as much support from other professionals in the reuse industry, you know, maybe that live in other states or countries? I mean, it sounds like locally you had a lot of support. Did you find similar support in, in the industry of reuse? That's, that's a great question. And um, we had a lot of support for the indirect potable reuse, which we continued to plan for through the uh, through the drought. So we we were continuing on that that path for IPR. But with the DPR, we really did um, raise some concern in the professional uh, sector for reuse, because um, potable reuse, taking a wastewater and reusing it for drinking water is a hard sell to people because we've all been taught that wastewater is bad and we don't really realize how great of a job the wastewater facilities in the united states do um, especially with the, the clean water act uh, that was enacted by the epa in the 70s and amended through through the decades the clean water act is a great foundation and you would be amazed to see the quality of water that these wastewater plants are putting back into receiving streams we found that that water when analyzed for the 97 primary drinking water standards was already meeting 94 of them it was almost drinking water quality there were only a couple of uh, parameters that we needed to get back down to get into the uh, primary drinking water standard level. And so they were doing a great job. Uh, so there was a lot riding on that in the industry and there were individuals in the water reuse uh, sector that thought, you know, if, 
if Wichita Falls screws this up, they're going to take the reuse industry back decades on public confidence and the ability to move projects forward. And so there was a lot riding on what we were doing, not just for Wichita Falls, but for potable reuse across the nation. Wow, it sounds like a lot of pressure there, you know, because it sounds like a lot of uh, magnifying glass was on Wichita Falls. Like what happens there could really affect a lot of people and have some ripple effects around the country and around the world. Correct. But it sounds like you're saying wastewater in the U.S. is generally at such a high standard that um, it, it's it's coming out almost as drinking water in a sense, except for a, a few parameters. It sounds like it's maybe a lot farther along than a lot of people would realize to start with. That's correct. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I, I could see where, you know, it, it, you're, you're being, I think whenever someone is creative and they're innovating and they're pioneering something, I, I, I love to hear about that. I think they're inspirational stories, but then obviously it, you're, uh, you're hacking through the jungle. You're, <laughs> sometimes you hit some thorns, right? So, uh, but you, we were out there on the bloody tip of the spear. <laughs> so, uh, but, but you pressed on, it sounds like it worked and you were able to kind of arrest these water losses and, and really never run out of water, right? That's correct. Uh, once uh, we hit the uh, stage five part of our drought plan and the uh, direct potable reuse came online, they, they came, they hit about 30 days from one another. And at that point, we were able to maintain our lake levels at 19% for over, for more than 12 months. Wow. And you needed to do that, right? Because it stayed dry there through 2015. And then from what I understand with the climate, it, it changed quickly, right? Uh, the, you came out of the drought in a hurry, huh? Uh, it, it did. Uh, it started raining in May of 2015. And within two weeks, we went from drought operations to flood operations. Uh, the rain continued through 2015. And we came out of a drought of record and went into uh, a year of the most precipitation ever recorded in Wichita Falls. Welcome to Texas, right? Where we we get severe droughts and we get very severe floods as well. That's just part of our, our life here. Um, I'm sure that was at least from the, we never want to see flooding, but at least from getting out of the drought, that had to be a really good news to see the climate kind of switch there. I, I will never complain about rain again. That's right. And you know how I even got on this story. I was traveling to Arizona to cover drought. I stopped somewhere in central Texas. I don't even know where to get brisket. And of course, I should just let people eat, enjoy their dinner. But I always end up interrupting people and talking to them. Talk to a guy from Wichita Falls and he started telling me these stories about, you know, people conserving every drop of water. He talked about even buckets being put under air conditioners to catch drops of condensation. I thought, I've never heard of anything like this before. So Wichita Falls was in the back of my mind. I was like, I have to go there someday and meet these people and hear these stories. Yeah, they, the, the public did some amazing things. There were stories, uh, I mean, if you read through, you go to the internet and you look at conservation measures, they say, you know, uh, reuse your bath water to water your plants. And well, and that works, but we were going so far as to uh, people were taking their bath water and instead of draining it, they were using it to flush their toilet. So they got two uses out of that. And then when the DPR came online, now we had a third use for that water. Well, wow, so they really were trying to conserve every drop they could, really. Absolutely. Like 
Uh, you had mentioned at one point your daughter came home from school and said, I, I guess among among the middle schoolers, they they voted that you're doing the right thing, right? I mean, it was humorous, but it showed me like the levels to which everyone was talking about this, right? Yes, uh, she was in fifth grade at the time. <clears throat> and she came home and I guess, you know, that the class had been seeing me a lot on television and they're hearing their parents talk about it. And they just had a discussion in class one day about it. And they decided as a class that uh, we were doing the right thing with the direct potable reuse. And uh, I, the, the funniest part of the story is, is my, my daughter, bless her heart, she's in college now. Uh, she said, even the smart girl in class said that that was the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kids have a funny way of saying things, but I mean, it does show like the extent to which everyone was talking about this, right? And um, how cool that the students are talking about a relevant topic like that, that affects them locally, you know, in science class, so. Yeah, and those fifth graders, like I said, my daughter's in college now, those fifth graders, uh, when we get into the next drought, which, you know, we're, we're getting there closer every day, they're going to be paying water bills and they're going to those lessons they learn they're going to use and so you know we we prime the next generation uh for dealing with drought yeah i love that and they'll be able to think back to when they lived through this and what they did how they conserved how their community came together i mean those are lessons like you said that they can take with them wherever they go especially the central and western u.s really going into a severe drought right now and um, I hope you're right that next generation, it's, it's so important that they're, uh, they're very aware and, and able to, to um, you know, adapt with this. So um, it seems like a lot of support locally for directory use. People were well aware of what you're doing. You were very transparent and open with the public. You had mentioned to me there was, there was another way to possibly, you know, attack the drought problem through cloud seeding. And um, this was, you know, where we put cloud condensation nuclei. For those that aren't familiar, you can put, it's been talked about, I think, for decades now of getting airplanes up and, and putting uh, chemicals or cloud condensation nuclei in the clouds to help induce rain. Uh, but it, it sounds like when that was talked about locally, there was a different reaction uh, from that that was a little bit surprising. Could you share a little bit about that? Correct. Uh, we actually did explore and utilize uh, cloud seeding using silver iodide um, particles to uh, act as a uh, condensation nuclei. Uh, we knew that in 2013 and, and moving into 2014, there was more rain. Um, we just were going to want to squeeze as much precipitation out of those clouds as possible. And so we thought cloud seeding would be a way of doing it. Um, now we kind of sprung this on the public, uh, whereas the, the EPR and the conservation measures, you know, we had been very transparent and, and keeping them up to date on every little thing. Um, we sprung cloud seeding on them. Um, and we we started it within 30 days of telling them. And there was a bit of pushback on that. Uh, people felt that we were doing the wrong thing with the cloud seeding. And that was more of a, um, a God issue and, and that we should not interfere with that. So uh, we did get some pushback for that, but we did proceed forward with it. We did show that we did get a little bit more precipitation, uh, but it's hard to, it was harder than we thought it would be um, to get the right cloud seeded to rain in the right area at the right time. 
And as the cloud seeding um, individuals that work for the state told us, you don't want to start cloud seeding when you're in a drought. You want to do cloud seeding before a drought. That's when you squeeze the most water out. I understand. That makes sense. There's probably more moisture to work with and, and things like that. What's really fascinating to me about that part of the story, though, I would think just offhand from hearing it for the first time that you'd have a lot more opposition to direct potable reuse than you would to cloud seeding. Um, and I think most people would probably feel that way. Do you feel like it's just the matter of the, the amount of engagement and the amount of time, you know, um, informing the public and getting their feedback and being transparent? Do you feel like that? It seems like you were you were communicating so well for so long about direct reuse. Uh, maybe that was the difference there, do you think? I, I think so. Um, we They were getting information on the direct potable practically daily. Uh, we not only engaged uh, city forces to talk about um, the reuse, but we got our medical community and our academic community here locally to talk to the public about the safety of the potable reuse. And so we had people with pedigrees talking about this. Uh, and then you turn around and you say, okay, uh, we're gonna do cloud city. But we didn't do that with scientists and we didn't do that with medical professionals. We just told them we were gonna do it. And so um, I think that had we taken the time maybe to do, be a little bit more scientific about it and explain it a little bit more, we probably wouldn't have gotten the pushback. Um, but yeah, it, it was the transparency and um, just telling the public everything and getting the scientists and the, and the medical profession to talk to the public about potable reuse that made it successful. Were there, through the process with direct reuse, were there community meetings? Were there a chance for people to come and ask questions directly, like in a town hall type of setting? Yes, we had several town halls. Uh, our local uh, state representative had um, several town halls. Our council had town halls. Um, we produced a video uh, that you can still see on YouTube with the medical professionals. <coughs> Our um, news media, both television and newspaper and even the radio, were very active in getting the word out to the public. Uh, we would bring the media outlets in for briefings before we did anything. Um, for a brunch, and then we would talk about, okay, this is the next stage. This is where we're going. We need your help. And so they were, uh, they did great jobs. Uh, uh, they even won awards for what they did communicating to the public through this drought. Daniel, when you mentioned when you mentioned medical professionals, were these people with the state? Were they local university, you know, professionals that study public health? I mean, who who medically was involved with this? The medical community, we, we started with our health department. We had a, a very good working relationship with them uh, through a uh, water quality task force that we formed in 1995 uh, between the public health department and public works. Uh, the public health department put us in touch with the health board and then the medical uh, alliance of uh, physicians here in Wichita Falls and we made several presentations to them and we got the, uh, the head of the Board of Health to uh, come out and see what was going on. And then we had also a, a respected doctor of an internal medicine um, tour as well. Now that was the medical uh, 
doctors. We went to Midwestern State University and we got chemistry doctors and environmental science doctors and did the same thing. We, we put them all together and we turned them through the wastewater plant, yep. showed them the quality of the water coming out of the wastewater plant. We turned them through the water treatment plant, showed them how we were going to treat the water. Um, and at the end of the day, we were told by several of them, they had no idea that the wastewater treatment plant could do what it was doing. And they had no idea that the water treatment plant had the capabilities that we had on site with our microfiltration and RO and then our state of the art water laboratory. Wow, this is great. So you really brought together a lot of different people from the science community, the health community, medical community. It sounds like to kind of work together. And, you know, this way, I think this is a good way to keep from being blindsided, right? When you're having these different meetings with different professionals, if something needs to be flagged, it gets flagged early on, right? That's correct. And, uh, you know, we had talked about industry and business earlier. We had the uh, Board of Commerce and Industry bring in, um, we did two sessions with them. They brought in 30 individuals for each session and we did the same thing we did with the doctors uh, from MSU and, and the medical profession. And then we told them, all right, now we want each one of you to go talk to 30 of your peers about this and help us get the word out. Yeah, that's fantastic. So it really became like a public education thing that really uh, just people coming together, professionals coming together from different sectors. You mentioned some of the uh, folks winning awards for this, even the city itself, didn't y'all win some awards as well, I think, from from people. You know, we talked about some of those concerns in the professional community early on, but in the end, it was a major success story. You guys saved your city. Uh, you did a lot of creative, innovative stuff, but in a, in a very, how can I say it, rational way moving forward, uh, it, it was a success story that deserved to be celebrated, and it sounds like that ended up happening with time, right? It did. Um, you know, the um, we got we garnered a lot of attention, not only in the United States, but worldwide. We had people from Australia and Singapore and Tokyo uh, come to here. Uh, we had uh, emails from the UK and, and Israel on, on how this was going. Um, as far as awards go, we've received awards from the state of Texas. We've received uh, awards from the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, I think the one that I enjoy the most is um, one of the leaders in our in industry of reuse uh, had expressed some concerns about Wichita Falls, you know, the, the, the risk of us screwing this up for everybody. And there is a uh, Environmental Sustainability Award in his name here in Texas and the year after we came online, we won that award with his name on it. And so, and he presented it to us. And so that was a real honor, uh, a highlight of my career to, to take somebody that, that was at the top of the profession and had concerns and get an award from him a year later. Well, that's great. It sounds well-deserved. Y'all were creative and innovative, and it shows that's a person of great character, too, that can express concerns, but then on the back end award you and, you know, um, be, be humble about that and, and be excited for y'all and celebrate what y'all had done. Uh, that's amazing. You had mentioned people around the world are interested in this now. Are there cities now that are maybe pursuing direct reuse as well? I mean, drought is becoming a big issue all over the world. 
Absolutely. Um, I um, am friends with the manager of the Vinhook Namibia facility. They have two now uh, there. Um, the original they've replaced with a newer one, and now they have a second one. And of course, uh, from 2017 to about 2020, uh, South Africa was going through a, a severe drought, and they had a, a zero day where they had anticipated the, the uh, country would run out of water. And so um, my friend uh, Pierre uh, in Benhook was actually helping the South African government um, create five direct potable reuse facilities across South Africa to try and help them get through that drought. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I know Australia had a huge drought, even in now the U.S. I mean, really, some of it's really a multi-year drought as well from the plains and, you know, in Texas all the way west to California. Have you seen any interest from any U.S. cities about possibly pursuing reuse or direct reuse? Um, the city of El Paso has been doing uh, indirect potable reuse through aquifer recharge for the last 30 years, and they are one of the leaders of that in the United States. They have done outstanding things out there. Um, they have investigated direct potable reuse, found it to be viable, and so they are in the process of building uh, the largest direct potable reuse facility in the world uh, there in uh, El Paso, and hopefully it'll be online within the next several years. And so um, El Paso will be doing both, IPR, through aquifer recharge and direct potable reuse. Uh, they continue to talk about direct potable reuse in California. Um, like the rest of the country, they are more comfortable with indirect potable reuse. Um, and that, that makes sense, whatever you, know, you need to, to get your public behind you. But uh, I think that if California looked at the data that Wichita Falls produced, they would see that direct polar use is a, a very viable option for them. I like the fact that you're so scientifically minded and that it seems like y'all have documented and developed a lot of data and analysis to help others see, you know, if they have concerns, they can go through the data and analysis and kind of see for themselves the safety of this. Correct. And we're in the process of uh, pulling all of that data together over 12 months worth of data and the uh, um, testing that we did before we came online. And we, we hope to write a peer-reviewed article uh, and get that published. And so that would get all the information out to anybody interested throughout the world. Daniel, I was just thinking of this, you know, sometimes industry develops alongside of uh, local and state government. You know, is there an industry kind of developing with direct reuse? Are there like consultants that have, you know, worked with y'all that maybe are traveling to these other places? It, it, could there be like an industry developing with that? Or is it more just kind of practical things that municipalities are already doing a lot of this already? Well, for the last 30, 40 years, there's been an industry developing. And so um, in the in the water industry, you have the drinking water associations like um, the American Water Works Association. And on the wastewater side, you have the Water Environment Federation, and and they do uh, some reuse, and then you've got the Water Reuse Association, and they are dedicated only to reuse, whether it be industrial or irrigation or crop irrigation, and now potable reuse, and so they kind of meld both the the drinking water and the wastewater associations together. So 
those are the, the big three uh, here in the United States. Uh, the American Waterworks Association is um, the organization that's responsible for creating drinking water standards for chemicals and pipes and valves and meters and how management, how things are done. And so the American Waterworks Association has gone so far as to create a potable reuse standard that can now be used anywhere in the United States as a guideline on how you do these types of projects. I see. So it sounds like there's really uh, more criteria and guidelines are being developed and put out there. Correct. And the EPA now has a uh, reuse action plan. And so they've really embraced reusing wastewater. Um, and so uh, they've got a guideline that, that you can use as well. And of course, California continues to study reuse ad nauseum, uh, how and where and, and why, and they are doing great things as far as research in California. Daniel, for your college students, young professionals that want to learn more about this, there, there are workshops and conferences and things like this, right, for reuse. What would be, you know, some of the, the key events or, or, you know, key associations that you, that you uh, think that people could get involved with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the three big ones that I mentioned, AWWA, WEF, and water reuse uh, on the national level. Now, all three of those have state chapters, uh, sector sections that uh, you can join. And then they all have symposiums and conferences. I just got back from the um, AWWA and, and WEAT conference, which is water wastewater, a month ago, I went to the inter or the national reuse symposium that was in San Antonio. So, um, you know, just connect to those organizations. Um, you and then go to the conferences and the symposiums and network as much as possible. Um, it's it, they provide learning opportunities and that networking opportunity. Yeah, that's always a great suggestion for young professionals, college students, get out there, meet some folks and, and get to see the exciting opportunities using a lot of this uh, environmental science and, and chemistry as well. Daniel, I live on the coast where it rains a lot more. If I came and spent a night with a friend in Wichita Falls, do you think it's possible I would see them doing different things than we do in the coast, just how they live their life, how they conserve water? I mean, has, has, have the lessons learned, say, eight, 10 years ago, is that still kind of carried on into the, the psyche and the behavioral aspects of a lot of people up there? I, I think the answer to that would be yes. Um, we are seven years out of the drought and of course we continue to monitor how much water is being used and we have not uh, rebounded to the pre-drought water use levels and so all of those habits all of that infrastructure that was installed to conserve water during the drought are still in place and they're still being used and so our water usage is still low yeah, that's great. It sounds like it really got into the psyche of people and people wanted to say, hey, we need to make some changes here to ensure that we have water enough water moving forward. Daniel, any last thoughts or insights that people should think about regarding this topic? Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I like to think outside the box. And so don't ever think that something's too crazy to discuss. Um, when, when you go into your boss's office and say, 
hey, I want to reuse our, our wastewater effluent as a drinking water source, uh, that that takes some guts. Uh, and my boss um, believed in me enough to at least sit there and listen to the proposal and um, couldn't have done it without him. Uh, we worked very closely together on this. Um, and, and he was a great guy to work with on it. Uh, really advanced things, uh, especially with the council and with the public. Um, but, uh, you know, just don't be afraid to think outside the box. Uh, do your research. Know what you're capable of doing and know what your facilities are capable of doing. Yeah, Daniel, I think that is a message that can apply to everyone, right? I mean, where I live, drought is not as big of a deal, but flooding is horrific. We have the deadliest natural disaster happen in my neighborhood. And lately, several of us have said, you know, we really need to start thinking more creatively about this. So I think that that type of message, whether people are dealing with drought or floods or volcanoes or earthquakes, whatever it is, sometimes we really need to think outside the box to find those creative solutions. Exactly. One of one of the phrases that drives me nuts the most is when I ask somebody, why are you doing it this way? And they say, well, that's just the way we've always done it. And they haven't tried to think of a new way of doing it or a better way or an efficient way of doing it. And so, um, yes, just stop, you know, doing things the way it's always been done. There are better ways of doing things. That's right. And always asking, is this the, the optimal way to do it instead of is this the way we've always done it? Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. I think this is going to be a fan favorite. I mean, this, there are really some inspirational lessons here. Uh, you guys needed a lot of courage and bravery and innovation, and also just the aspect of the community coming together, the, the, the key public messaging and you know, transparency and communication. I think those are lessons that we can apply to communities all over the world. Well, Hal, I appreciate the opportunity to, to let everybody know about our direct potable reuse. And if you guys ever want to talk more in depth about it, feel free to count me in. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was great to spend time with you uh, up there in your office when we visited. And uh, thanks so much for this podcast. Again, I think it'll be a fan favorite. We were talking today to Daniel Nix. He's a utility operations manager in the Department of Public Works in the city of Wichita Falls, Texas. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the GeoTrek podcast. Thank you, Hal. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production, Team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.